The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Take out your Bibles, your apps, whatever it is you use to follow along. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the seats in front of you you can take out and read. We also have some for you in our Welcome Center. We would love to give you as a gift before you leave here today. We're in Acts chapter 2. You can follow along with me. We'll be reading from beginning in verse 42. Please give it your careful attention as this is God's word. And they, the early followers of Jesus, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the needs distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we sit under your word, we ask that you would come and teach us by your spirit. And Lord, we especially ask that you would teach us how we can grow as a community of believers here, honoring Christ and seeking to take your gospel to the ends of the earth, beginning here in our neighborhoods and in our local communities. We thank you, Lord, for your word and for this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in a series called The Good Life, and this morning, the big idea is that the good life, the abundant life that Jesus has promised to us is to be found in embracing community and resisting individualism and resisting independence. So before we get off on the, into the text together, let's answer just a really basic question what is meant when we use the word community? Well, we're talking about what we find in this passage. We're talking about the fellowship, the life of Christian believers together. We're talking about the distinctly Christian group of people who love one another, not simply as the world loves, but as followers of Christ who seek to understand and live out the implication of God's word on their lives. That's the kind of community that we're talking about this morning. And my hope for our time together is that as we look at the early church, as we see it here in, in Acts chapter 2, as we look at the early church, as we see on the pages of history, my hope is that we'll be able to look back and gain wisdom and insight into how God would have us today build a community of believers here, a stronger community of believers here into the future. So we're going to look back in order to look forward. 
There's four lessons I think we'll find here this morning. And the first is that we must receive community as a gift. We must receive community as a gift. Verse 42 begins with this phrase, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Since its inception, our faith has found its source of life and of power in the word of God. In the Old Testament, that came to us through Moses and the prophets. And now in the New Testament, we say it is completed in the teachings of the apostles as they have been passed down to us. The Christian community is built first and foremost on Christ and his word. And so the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. As Christians, we are a word people. We love words. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German theologian and martyr, this is the big point that he makes in his uh, well-known classic great book, Life Together. He said, Christian community is to be found nowhere else but through Christ and his word. There is no Christian community apart from devotion to his word. It is the glue which holds us together. And why is that? Because it is in the message of the gospel that we discover that community is a gift. It is a gift of salvation and it is a gift of being a part of the kingdom of God. Now, if you want to know what this teaching looked like, there's really no better place than earlier in Acts chapter 2 with Peter's sermon. It is in the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ that we must put our faith in for the forgiveness of our sins. And when we put our faith in Christ, we discover something very beautiful. That while we may be saved out of our sins as individuals, we are saved into a new family, a new people, a new body, a new community. And so in 2 Corinthians 5, we read that Christ has reconciled us to God. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation and he now makes his appeal to the world through us, a people. And so if you're here today and you have not put your faith in Christ, we as ambassadors of God's kingdom, we would ask you, we would implore you to consider Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world who offers forgiveness to you today. We want you to know Christ. And so look at Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 and consider this Christ. Go back and read the book of Luke. Consider the teachings of Jesus and then study church history and study how the teachings of Jesus revolutionize the world. Consider that Christ today. We want you to come and join us as part of this new people and this new work that God is doing in human history through his church. So do you want to know how Christ revolutionized the world? It began with these people. 
And it began because they received the Christian community as a gift. You know, there have been countless attempts in human history to create utopia. To create utopia apart from God. And guess what? They've all failed. Every time. And this is the big difference between utopia and the Christian community. Utopia is an impossible ideal that we must strive for, and it never works because we're all sinful and flawed, and eventually we find out we don't get along, and so we separate until eventually we're a community of one. Doesn't work. But Christian community cannot be strived for, it cannot be created on our own effort, it can only be received as a gift. And when we receive this gift, everything else, everything else will follow. The Reformation theologian John Calvin, commenting on this passage, he said that it is through the devotion of our lives to the teachings of Christ and the apostles that everything else flows out of it. The fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers, the radical selflessness that we see. It all flows out of being devoted to the apostles' teaching because only there do we receive community as a gift. And it's only when we receive community as a gift that we can begin to develop the practices of community, which is the second lesson we see here, the practices of community. And so let's dig deeper into the effect that the apostles' teaching had on the lives of the early church. It says they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and distributing to anyone who had needs. They, day by day, every day they were together and worshiping and eating meals together. What's going on here? They had discovered Christian community, which theologian J.I. Packer describes as a kind of harmonious consensus, a brotherly love, and a mutual deference. You know, there is a radical unselfishness that only God can produce in the human heart. What we read here in this passage is not communism. This is not a mandated society where everything puts everyone, everyone puts everything together in a communal pot and then it's equally distributed to all. That's not what's happening. This is a spiritual communalism marked by radical unselfishness with hearts open wide to the needs of others both in and outside of the Christian community. It was this spiritual communalism that caused Christianity to stand out amongst the pagan religions and philosophies. It's what made it so attractive to others and caused it to spread so quickly that within two centuries, it threw, threw apart, tore apart an empire. Here are the kinds of practices that developed in the earliest Christian communities. First, more than any of the pagan religions or philosophies, Christianity was able to attract all races, all classes, all ages, both genders. Judaism couldn't quite escape its racial bonds. The philosophies, the Greco-Roman philosophies of the day, they couldn't quite escape only attracting the rich and the elite. But Christianity was different. Attracted all people from all tribes, all classes, all both genders. 
This is why we read in places like 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul says in one spirit we were baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free. It's because that's what was happening in these earliest communities. All people were coming and being reconciled together. Second, there was this strange new idea that we ought to love our enemies, to forgive others, to go and be reconciled to others instead of taking revenge. These ideas, they were coming out of Christianity. No other religion or philosophy of its day was producing this kind of belief and behavior on this scale. And we take these virtues for granted today, but these teachings of Jesus and the the actions of the earliest Christian followers, they confronted an empire that was built on oppression and exploitation. Third, while other religions did talk about caring for the poor, the extent to which the early church was doing so was unprecedented. There was an energy coming out of the early church that has never been seen before in the history of the world. It was Christians that essentially invented hospitals, invented orphanages, invented poor relief in this concept of welfare, and the idea of human rights, that human beings have dignity. Do you understand how monumental this was? Do you understand how devastating this was to the Roman Empire? These communal practices of the early church, they became social ideals. They transformed the way people lived together. That's the reason why they make so much sense to you today. Why do these ideas of forgiveness and and caring for the poor and, and hospitals and orphanages, why do they make so much sense to us today? It's because of the practices of the early church became the social ideals that transformed, revolutionized human history. And I think, at least I, I'm, I'm inspired by that, right? Like, don't, don't you kind of look at that like, I want to be a part of that. Like, let's go back and do that, right? Let's change the world. Make no mistake. As incredible as this was, as revolutionary as this was, as inspiring as this was, This was not comfortable. This was not easy for them to do. We often read passages like Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 12, and we don't stop to consider how immensely difficult it would have been to pull this off. I mean, can you imagine bringing groups of people together who for their whole lives had been taught to look down on, to exploit, or to hate the other? That's not easy. It's not comfortable. Producing these kinds of communal ethics and practices in a newly reconciled people was immensely difficult. And this is why, as we sometimes say around here, it had to be a community that could only be explained by the gospel. It had to be a community that could only be explained by the gospel. And friends, We need to understand that gospel community is not going to be any easier today. It's not. The spirit of our age 
tells us to embrace comfort and ease as the ideal. And sadly, this spirit has infiltrated the way many of us think about church. There's this idea that the more comfortable I am in church, the better ministry there will be. There's this idea that the best ministry is only going to be carried out in groups of people that are like me, like life stage, my like age, my, my, my gender, my socioeconomic class. There's this idea that a 30-year-old Christian man and a 65-year-old Christian woman don't have enough in common to do ministry and life together. Let me tell you something. You want to know what that is? That is grade A Oscar Meyer baloney. I have more in common with the 65-year-old Christian women in this room than I do with any of my 30-year-old non-Christian peers. In the fellowship of Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit, I have all things in common with every believer in this room. So the idea that we need to do life separated from each other, it's baloney. But if that's going to happen, we are going to need to learn to embrace difficulty, to embrace discomfort, embrace frustration, and embrace conflict on the road to spiritual and communal growth and practice, which takes us to the third lesson that we need to embrace the challenges of community. It wouldn't be gospel community if it's not challenging. When we read about incidents in the New Testament, such as the conflict with the care of widows in Acts chapter 6, or the conflict that separated Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys, or Peter showing favoritism to the Jewish believers, or the many conflicts that we just studied in the church in Corinth or in Ephesus, our expectation is it's going to look pretty similar today. There's going to be a lot of that going around. And there's many challenges today informing community that, that uh, not only because of uh, bringing sinful people together to do life together, but also because of the context in the world and the culture that we live in. And so I just want to briefly touch on three challenges that I think are perhaps most pressing uh, for our church and our, and our context. The first is the challenge that there's a general collapse of communal bonds and practice in our culture. All right, and I'm talking here more generally, not just the church, but there's this general collapse of communal bonds and practice in our culture. And so if you came to our Sunday school class a few weeks ago where we were talking about loneliness, and you know some of the, the, the statistics on, on these, this collapsing of society all around us. If you want those statistics, I can send them to you. But this is something we have to face as a church and as a body of believers, that our neighborhoods, our communal bonds, our, our relationships are fracturing. There's a helpful summary, I think, of, of what this looks like from urban studies theorist Richard Florida. And he says, he describes what's happening like this. He divides uh, American culture into three groups, uh, the mobile, the rooted, and the stuck. And essentially what he says is that the rooted, which are primarily the older generations who have been planted in their place for a long time, the rooted are vanishing. The stuck have too many crises in their lives to worry about much else. And the mobile are too busy to really give of themselves to anybody else. 
And so we have this tearing apart of our neighborhoods and communal practices. There's a lot more I wish I could say here. Just email me if you want to know more resources and statistics on this. But if we are going to take building Christian community seriously, we need to acknowledge that it's an uphill battle, that there's a lot of work that needs to be done just because of the culture that we live in. The second challenge facing us is that many of us are just too busy. We're just too busy for community. Our schedules are packed and we're either already or near burnout. Author Jake Medor in his uh, new book, In Search of the Common Good, he says uh, that Christian community is a math problem where the numbers just don't add up. I think some of you know what I'm, what I'm talking about here. He says, you know, we, on paper, we work 40-hour-a-week jobs, but you factor in our commutes and the hours we're actually working, and we're really working 60 to 70 hours a week. Then we got to come home and we got to run errands. We got to make meals. We got to uh, spend time with our spouse, maybe with our kids. Then we got to take our kids to the extracurricular activities. And we say, where's the time? There's just no unhurried time in our schedules to build the kind of thick community that gospel community requires. And so, again, I know many of you know what I'm talking about here. And so while we're on this point, I want you to hear me on this. Here is what I am not telling you. Here is what we as a church are not telling you to do. Not me, not Charlie, not Bruce, not any of our staff, nobody. We are not telling you that in order to build community, we want you to go be more efficient at all the things you're already doing so that you can make time in your already worn out schedules for one of our programs, so crowd your schedule with something new. We're not telling you to go be, just become more efficient at what you're already doing. We know you're tired. We know you're worn out. We know you're burned out. And we're going to talk about this more in a few weeks when we talk about Sabbath and rest, but... The idea of efficiency, the idea of productivity, of more demands. Friends, that's the language of the economy of Pharaoh. The economy of God, the language of the economy of God is neighborliness, not efficiency. I'm not asking you to become more efficient. I'm asking you to think about ways to be more neighborly. And neighborliness is always going to be less efficient. But because we are not machines, but because we are creatures made in the image of God, neighborliness will always be better than efficiency. And so here's what I'm asking you to consider. For some of you, that might mean taking something out of your packed schedule. It might mean looking at your priorities. Maybe for you, it means working out one or two less days a week and being willing to put on five pounds. You know, I've put on, listen, I've put on at least 10 pounds since I started working here and I went first to show you that it's every, everything's going to be okay <laughs> so you can just follow me and everything will be fine, all right? Maybe the answer for you is cutting something from your schedule. But maybe the answer for you is just looking at things you're already doing and adding a communal piece to it. Maybe it's finding a church member to work out with, or a church member to carpool with, or a church member to call while you're walking your dog at night. I think with a little bit of effort and creativity, each of us can find ways to be more neighborly with the time that's given to us. The third challenge 
I think this is probably the greatest challenge facing each of us, is the individualism in our culture. And it's the greatest challenge facing us because we're not even aware of how individualistic we are. You don't need to be an expert sociologist to know that the more prosperous a culture becomes, the more individualistic it's going to be. We know this instinctively, of course, that's exactly what the experts will tell you. Here's how this works. For example, in a prosperous culture, people are often less likely to give of their income to charity or, or to people in need than those who live in poorer, less prosperous communities and neighborhoods. Reason? Lack of exposure. Lack of exposure to people in need. Lack of exposure to people in need breeds lack of empathy. Lack of empathy breeds lack of communal practice and ethic. That's just the way our world works or the culture that we live in works. And isn't this exactly what Moses warned us of in Deuteronomy 6? Deuteronomy 6 is a great warning for those of us who live in suburbia. When you enter into a land full of things that you didn't make or that you didn't create, that you didn't right, that you didn't build, don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Prosperity breeds spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy breeds lack of devotion. Lack of devotion ultimately leads to more heightened detrimental individualism and a lack of community practice. When I was, um, when I was in college, I worked for this uh, really great little four-star restaurant chain known as Ruby Tuesdays. And um, <laughs> our location was a prime uh, spot because it was in a movie theater. And uh, so we often had people coming in for dinner before they would go to see their movies, so which meant we often got a lot of teenagers. And so one time I got sat with a table of teenagers and I walked by them while they were looking over the menu before they placed their order and it was so funny. Now I was so mad at the time but it's so funny now. I, I remember hearing them say, here's how much money my parents gave me and here's how much money my parents gave me. Here's, you know, and they were all talking and they were kind of having this conversation of, okay, well here's how much money I can spend on dinner to have money left over for a ticket and to have money left over for snacks, right? And it was very clear to me when I was listening to this conversation that they were not factoring tip into the equation. <laughs> Right? It was very clear to me, this is not going to go well for me. <laughs> and sure enough, they left. I walked by the table, and it was just pennies. Pennies was left. Friends, isn't this how so, much, so many of us approach our time and our resources and our energy and our hobbies, what we invest ourselves into? We put everything in that we want to do first, and if there's anything left over, Others can have our pennies. So how do we start to recognize this individualism in ourselves? Well, what I'm about to tell you is going to be really profound, so you might want to write this down. You'll never start to be a part of community until you start to be a part of community. It's really that simple. When we begin to invest ourselves in community as these early followers of Jesus did, when we begin to trust God 
that his people, his community are a gift to us and we begin to invest ourselves in others, our eyes will open and our hearts will widen. The impulse for community will begin to become greater than the impulse for self. We'll begin to find that we consider the needs and the desires and the wants even of others as greater than our own. You know, there's this great little verse in 1 Peter where 1 Peter instructs the church to practice hospitality without grumbling. I love that verse. It's really funny to me now. Every time I think of it, I chuckle because as Neve and I, you know, we got married and we started practicing ministry together and a lot of that has meant spending more time with people. Listen, I promise you that I am the most selfish, individualistic, naturally unhospitable person in this room. And so when we first started practicing ministry and doing community together, I would grumble, right? Sometimes I still do. Sometimes I still do. But when I look back on the last six years of practicing ministry in community, of growing in community practice, of of inviting more people into our homes and spending more time with others, I see that Christ has been at work in our lives, making us more like him through this simple obedience of living life in community. Which takes us to the fourth and final lesson that we really need to know the purposes of community. So we need to receive community as a gift which only comes through devotion to Christ and his word. We need to begin to develop communal practices. We need to embrace the challenges and recognize it's not gonna be easy. And the whole time, we need to keep the purposes of community before us. And the first purpose that we find in this passage is this. Christian community is good for the saints. Christian community is good for the saints. Christian, you need the community of God's people. And if you haven't come to a time in your life, a dark time in your life, where you need the Christian community to come around and support you, you will. Let's not forget, this isn't about you. Others need you, right? Others need your ministry to them. You see how these early Christians, they were willing to sell everything so that others could be cared for. In a similar passage in Acts chapter four, it says that there were church members who were selling their houses and their land to make sure that others would be provided for. God has gifted each of us with resources, time, energy, and gifts that are not just for us. And so to withhold yourself from community is not only detrimental for you, it's detrimental for others. But we could also press this point still deeper. We need others not only for our physical needs to be met, but also for spiritual growth. Look at verse 46. It says, day by day they attended the temple together and they broke bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. How do you get glad and generous hearts amongst all of the difficulty that we know existed in the early church? I'll tell you, that is a gift of God's grace. That's sanctification at work. Have you ever noticed how patient you are as long as nobody else is around? Have you ever noticed 
how humble you are when you're with people who respect you? Have you ever noticed how loving you are when you're with people who are exactly like you? It's really easy to be a saint in isolation, isn't it? But it's in the life of Christian community where our sins and our flaws and our brokenness are exposed, which is what makes community essential for the life of a Christian. If we're going to grow in becoming more like Christ, it is only going to happen in community with others, period. So, first purpose is that it's good for the saints. The second purpose of community is it's good for all. It's good for all. Look at verse 47. Verse 47 is remarkable. It says they were praising God and having favor with all the people. You know, there's a lot of places in the New Testament where it instructs Christians to be well thought of by outsiders. Here's an example of it actually happening. Of course, we know that Christians were often targeted for their faith, and so what was likely happening here is that it was the, those who lived in the neighborhoods where the churches were gathering that saw Christianity, that saw the gospel being lived out. It was they who began to think very highly of the Christians who were living there. They were the ones who were most likely to begin to feel the effects of neighborliness as it was being practiced in these early Christian communities. Now, I've said this before, and you're probably going to hear me say this many times again in the future. The Bible does not present us with the option of building a community that is either just for growing Christians or just for outreach. The Bible doesn't give us that option. 20th century American evangelical churches have done a great job of emphasizing one over the other. And so now we have this, well, are you a discipleship church or a seeker church, right? Are you a church where it has a lot of deep teaching for Christians or are you a church with a lot of good programs and seeker and outreach? Both extremes are wrong. Pastor Doug Logan, a PCA pastor up in uh, uh, Camden, New Jersey, He says this in his book, On the Block. He says, a biblically informed and Christ-honoring mission must find a third way to bring these extremes together. We must disciple one another to grow, yes, while at the same time instilling in one another a relentless drive to take the gospel outward into our neighborhoods and our cities. These early Christians would have thought it impossible to separate the two. It would have been impossible. Their their faith would not have allowed it. There's a historian and a a sociologist by the name of Rodney Stark. He's up at uh, Baylor University, so some of you will know him. He has some great books and great research on how the early church grew, how they made conversions, how it grew so rapidly that, again, it uh, uh, turned over an empire. And here's what he says. He says, it primarily happened through the church expanding their social networks with non-Christians. In other words, non-Christians first came into contact with the Christian community 
They made relationships, they saw the gospel lived out, they received the love of the Christian community, and then they embraced the message of the gospel. That was the only way that it would have been plausible for them to leave their social network behind for a new social network. So here's a couple of examples of what this looked like. First, it was through the ministry of women. Christianity in the first few centuries of the Roman Empire, was very good for women. Greco-Roman culture treated women like second-class citizens. Infants were often discarded at birth if they were unwanted, and it was most likely to be infant girls to be discarded and left to die. Girls were often married before puberty. Husbands often had affairs with no moral quandary. Widows were left uncared for. Christians, on the other hand, they forbid infanticide, they adopted unwanted infants, they waited for sex and marriage until after the age of 18, they cared for widows in the hundreds. We know that by the year 250, the church in Rome, which was probably about 30,000 people, was caring for as many as 1,500 displaced widows. That's a three-to-one ratio. As a result, the network and ministry of women drew other women into the faith. And as a result of that, husbands and households were converted. In fact, history tells us that you want to know how Christianity penetrated the upper tiers of society? Through women. That's why we read of women like Lydia in the book of Acts. The second way this happened was through the ministry of mercy and relief. In the first couple centuries of the church, there were two major plagues that swept through the Roman Empire, the priests and the physicians. When the epidemics hit, the the pagan priests and the physicians, they abandoned the cities and fled for the countryside. Records indicated that temples were of no use because if you went to a temple for prayer, there was no priest to be found. But do you know who stayed? Do you know who stayed and cared and nursed for their pagan neighbors and nursed them back to health? It's the Christians. The Bishop of Alexandria, during the second plague, he wrote, many in nursing and caring for others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. And their response had everything to do with their faith. Pagan religion had no concept of a God who cared for the affairs of mankind, no concept of a promise of eternal life. But Christianity taught there was a God who cared for the affairs of mankind, who cared how we treat one another, and who, through Christ, was bringing people to him for eternity. So it was their faith, the faith of the early church, that transformed the way they treated their neighbor, Christian and non-Christian alike. Has ours. Has ours. Are our neighborhoods better because we live in them? Are our neighborhoods healthier and stronger wherever ministry groups of our church gather? Many of you have asked me since I've come to the church if I have any ideas of a plan for an evangelistic program for our church. Well, friends, here it is. It's us. It's us. It's our life together. 
And this is only going to happen if we are intentional in every single gathering of our life together to build a community that is good for the saints and good for all. Which takes us finally to the third purpose of community, the most important purpose. Community exists for the glory of God. The ultimate goal of a community that can only be explained by the gospel is to display God's glory through our neighborhoods and our cities. And friends, this just takes us right back to John 13. He is going to glorify himself through the Son, and people will know that he is the Son, that he is the Savior, that he is the resurrected Christ who died to redeem the world. They will know by how we love one another. They will know we belong to Jesus by how we love one another. And that is why he is pleased to add to our number. It's for his glory and not our own. And in a world that is filled with loneliness and hopelessness, where this phrase, the death of despair, is becoming more and more popular, in a world where we just can't seem to get along, where bitterness and hatred seem to be normal now, where we can't have conversations with our neighbor. What greater purpose could we have? What a gift. What a gift. Let's pray. Father, your word teaches us that the good life is not going to be found in selfishness and self-pursuits but it's only gonna be found in life together with your people. Father, we ask that you would open up our hearts wide. I ask that you would open up my heart wide to no longer grumble as often as I do, to no longer complain about being busy. Lord, that you would help me see how I can steward, how we can steward our time, our energy, and resources for the good of those in this church and those outside the four walls of this building. God, I pray that you would cause a movement to stir in our midst of a healthier and stronger community. We, Lord, we acknowledge that you have gifted us with community now, and we love the community of this church, and we ask, Lord, that you would grow it. You would grow us in love. You would grow us in service. And Lord, through our devotion to you, to your word, perhaps even you might be pleased to add to our number. What a gift, Lord. Help us to receive your church, your community, as a gift to us. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.